Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I'm Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Canada. And it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, to this episode Mark Garrett and Ruth Catlow, both of Furtherfield Gallery, uh, to talk a little bit about their work over the last many years on games, games within, games against capitalism, uh, games for a different version of society and a different vision of society. Ruth and Mark, Welcome to you. Hello. Hello. Lovely to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to introduce each of you in turn, but begin by saying that Furtherfield is London's longest running, as you put it, D-Centre for Art and Technology, which has been operating since 1996 in one form or another. And the mission of Furtherfield is to disrupt and democratize through deep exploration, open tools, and free thinking. And Furtherfield is located in London's Finsbury Park. Uh, in a lovely set of buildings there in a very interesting urban and social milieu. So Mark is an artist, a writer, and an activist who has curated over 60 contemporary media art exhibitions, projects, uh, both nationally and internationally. Mark recently completed his PhD at Birkbeck University and is the author, uh, co-author of two books. One of them is Artists Rethinking the Blockchain, which was co-authored with Ruth Catlow, Nathan Jones, and Sam Skinner, which was published in 2017 and uh, published by Torque. And also the uh, edited collection State Machines, Reflections and Actions at the Edge of Digital Citizenship, Finance, and Art, which was co-edited with Yanis Kolakiris, into Glorish and published by the Institute for Network Cultures in Amsterdam in 2019. And this year, uh, Mark's new book will be out on Frankenstein Reanimated Art and Life in the 21st Century, which is also co-edited with Yanis Kolakiris and is also published by Torque. So we look forward to that. And Ruth has spent the last 20 years exploring games and more recently live action role play as a way of engaging people's imaginations and expertise across silos around emerging technologies and the wicked social and political problems they give rise to or intensify. Ruth's artistic practice and curatorial work at Furtherfield is focused on critical investigations of digital and networked technologies and their emancipatory potential. And she is founder of DECAL, the Decentralized Arts Lab, that is crowdsourcing research and development by leading artists using blockchain and Web 3.0 technologies for fairer, more dynamic and connected cultural ecologies and economies. And Ruth is also the primary investigator at the Blockchain Lab at the Serpentine Gallery's research and development platform. Wonderful to have you both here. Um, Ruth, I I wonder if uh, you could begin by kind of giving us a bit of a short story of further field. And I wondered if you could sort of outline for us what led you to co-found it and how the world has changed since then and what you folks are focusing on now. We co-founded Furtherfield in 1996 uh, in London, out of Backspace. So this was London's first uh, cyber cafe for creative exploration. Very unruly place, all kinds of people coming in and out. 
uh, when half a meg of bandwidth was like all the riches in the world. And um, it was really as the web was growing up as a place that anyone could publish to. Uh, Mark and I were both uh, artists in London. We had studios in one of these kind of build your own studio setups, but we had this shared sense of discomfort and disgust around what the Saatchi and Saatchi scene were doing to the British art scene in London, turning everything into markets and a star system and really crushing out any artistic engagement with politics and kind of social issues. So those two things happened at once. Mark had a kind of long background in pirate radio, bulletin boards, kind of pre-net, pre-net DIY grassroots culture. And so when, when we kind of were exposed to the web in the way that we were at Backspace, we both took to it quite naturally and understood it as a kind of early place where you could create your own art context, recreate the art world with others that you could find through all kinds of odd means online to shape the art world in the way that you wanted to shape it. I think it's worth saying that we kind of really grew up at the same time as this kind of burgeoning uh, free and open source software culture, peer-to-peer cultures. I often describe myself as a kind of recovering web utopian. I personally really thought that it was going to be this dream where we would build the world as we needed, based on our needs and shared priorities. Skip 10 years forward and you see the re-centralization of the web and the corporatization of the web with uh, the big five really kind of crushing in. And then skip another 10 years forward and you see the consequences of that for democracy and the kind of public realm. Also, uh, I'd been in Bristol beforehand and I was working with people like Heath Bunting where we were running the bulletin board systems, doing street art and hacking television and building our own radio stations and creating platforms for critical dialogue with a kind of networked consciousness before the internet. So it was already there and it was very much about where you build your own community on your own terms rather than have it built for you and very much about actively allowing a much more wider spread of people through uh, exploring kind of music as a kind of, I don't know, a kind of meeting point and then you kind of move on from that and spread outwards to... Uh, a larger group of people and discuss other ideas about what's going on in contemporary cultural society and the idea of open free and open source culture which was also kind of in its early stages when we were using bulletin board systems we were using early forms of like linux etc further field in a way was a for me was a very natural step you know kind of natural evolution in in and reflecting uh, how those circumstances are of the modern world through the internet at the same time and still kind of moving on with some of those people uh, as part of a kind of uh, community, which includes Ruth and I kind of exploring, finding a platform to reflect those ideas in a progressive manner 
that would be influences of hacktivism, situationism, fluxes, net art, punk and post-punk, tactical media, and seeing how within all those different kinds of influences where we can find ourselves in, in a kind of at the edge of the art world at the same time. You recently completed your PhD dissertation as a kind of autoethnography and reflection on, on this work over the years. And one of the themes that comes out in that quite clearly is the importance of sort of the punk and post-punk scene and ethos, as well as the kind of inspiration of the situationists. And in both cases, the really strong importance of like ideas of play and ideas of games. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of this idea of creating a kind of revolution on the level of everyday life. Some good examples would be Guti Game of War, when we were working with Richard Barbrook, who, who with Andy Cameron, uh, wrote uh, Californian Ideology. Uh, we were quite influenced by that text, but also influenced by what Richard was up to in, in exploring games culture as a kind of critique of society, but very much from a part post-Marxist position. And he contacted us and asked us to, in 2009, kind of set up, uh, in a way, an event so you can play board games based around Guy Debord's Game of War and uh, Alice Becker-Ho's Game of War. But previous to that, we also, we, we wrote Artists Through Thinking Games, which was 2010, actually one year after that, actually. So, But we were involved with games as well. I was interviewing uh, Alex Galloway at the time as well, and because we're all exploring aspects of situationist games. The question about play and the like, why play? Why why play is a useful way to approach topics like serious topics that deserve serious attention. Is that I think when you set up playful scenarios you create all different kinds of portals for all different kinds of people to come in and interact with a kind of situation or a topic. And by doing that, you can come up with lots of unexpected results and conclusions and you find out a lot really fast. So the, I think the piece that Mark was uh, suggesting I talk about is a piece called Rethinking War Games, which was my kind of first foray into participatory online games in 2003. I'd, I'd never really thought about games as an art form, but this was really kind of driven by uh, current events at the time. So I'd attended, at that point, one of London's largest ever demonstrations uh, against the... Allies' decisions to go into Iraq in 2003, this was. Just like looking around me at all the kind of banners and protest slogans, it just became really evident that this was a war in the interests of the rich and powerful against the little people. A few things came together in my mind at that protest, and it just started this process where I'd started looking at the chessboard as a as a kind of structural image of how power is organised and structured and has been for thousands and thousands of years and how this game is an expression of those structures of power. 
and how our sharpest alpha male minds are trained using that struck that kind of game structure of power to be the most competitive and manly that they can be. I guess taking a kind of situationist detournement strategy, like how can we flip this? How can we turn it? And how can we create a situation in which we might bring these sharp strategic alpha male minds to consider a question of how to bring about world peace rather than the domination and and kind of crushing of the little people, the turning of the little people into fodder for the interests of the higher pieces. And so this is my first attempt to kind of like really crowdsource as many different people's ideas about what we might do. And as a result of that, we ended up with a game of three-player chess in which the, the pawns were played by a third player, Who's, and the pawn's role was to block violence, block the taking of pieces so that the chessboard could be overgrown with different grasses and the board would be lost and you'd be living in a, in a peaceful, diverse ecology instead. And then Mark and I went and played this in a number of places. So we played it in kind of in a alternative Olympics in Bristol and it got played it actually got played quite a lot in schools as a kind of way to kind of like think about power structures and to think about what it means to kind of twist games. The interesting thing about the aspect of, of bringing in a, a kind of third narrative where the pawns fight against the hierarchy is that the hierarchy on both sides became the enemy in the pawns and before, in a way, though, the pawns were being used on behalf of the enemy on both sides. Yeah, that to me illustrated class struggle. What's so really lovely about using kind of like existing games or existing situations is that people already they have an embedded, embedded or embodied understanding because they are familiar with the rules. At that point, everyone knew how to play chess. It actually probably isn't the case anymore. But when I made that, like everyone knew at least what the moves were. And so you're you're working with quite a complex thing and engaging people to think in quite a complex way about something that's kind of like hopefully properly subversive. But Ruth also went to chat rooms and had deep discussions with obsessed chess players. They weren't happy. They weren't happy, <laughs> no, uh, because it's been politicised and it wasn't a pure abstract game, you know. But it was really interesting watching the discussions. And these are hundreds of people, you know, obsessed with the game, kind of really trying to figure out what, what was this, what was going on. It was really interesting. Um, I met with the same kind of fury. It was like really angry that I saw happen to Anne-Marie Schleiner in her Velvet Strike which was a patch that she made for Counter-Strike, where you could go into Counter-Strike video games and spray peace slogans on the walls of the uh, war scenes. And she got completely kind of hated on by keen players of the game. It's just like quite interesting to see that, I think. Uh, I was thinking as you as you were describing this, the question of community, which is something that uh, interests us in this project, what kind of communities can be generated through games? I was very interested in that distinction 
you made uh, between the, I mean, the, the chess players that were very serious about what the game consists of and, and then the kind of communities that you built through your own intervention. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think the difference between those communities might be. What is the uh, relational component of playing uh, the game that you devised and, and how that might differ from the experience that of the traditional gaming uh, of those people that were protesting against your intervention? What made them cross was that they'd spent years becoming expert at playing the original game. So they were excellent. They had expertise. The kind of set of their, their status, their social status was kind of attached to just how what, how virtuosic they were in their play. And so to come in just seemed like a trivialization. I kind of, you know, I sympathize. It's really annoying to have someone come in, like you're trying to have a serious conversation about something that you really enjoy. You've spent years kind of like working towards it and someone comes in and does something that basically is either poking fun at it or saying, oh yes, but if you play this, then that means this about you. It's putting a different lens on something they love and that they have kind of attached themselves to. It was kind of like at the core of a whole load of tactical media strategies for many, many, many years before the alt-right got a hold of it and started doing it back to the progressives. (laughs) We don't like it either when <laughs> when it's done to us, you know. It's not comfortable when people come into our communities that are built with love and care to do things that are important to us and people make fun of it. It reminds me that the kind of maybe the the hinge moment was, you know, almost a decade ago now with the sort of Gamergate scandal where similarly, you know, uh, uh, sort of a feminist game critic uh, and game designers came under huge attack from this kind of revanchist um, male gaming community. And then many of the kind of alumni of the Gamergate campaigns of abuse and harassment went on to become some of the most notorious sort of provocateurs and conspiracy peddlers of the far right. So it's it's interesting how much of this ends up revolving around games. So much for those who think that they're just frivolous, uh, meaningless activities. <laughs> they're just incredibly powerful mm. kind of forms of conditioning and programming. Yeah, they're, they're like super powerful. Well, have you, have you heard of the term avant-garde politics? Uh, when Putin decided to kind of start annoying the Ukraine, taking over parts of the Ukraine, flying over moving into the Ukraine uh, a, a little while back, and uh, he hired an artist to help him form a strategy around invading very casually parts of the Ukraine. And they, and they used the term avant-garde politics. And in a sense, what's so interesting is that you can just, you can gamify the situation. And it doesn't really matter what the result is because Whatever disaster you cause is the result you need, and it it, it kind of reminds me of a kind of the the Brexit situation uh, with hedge funders. You know, if you're the one that's investing in the disaster, you're going to win either way, and if it's done to you, you're you because you don't know it's a game. You you've already lost, and it's that's these kind of things that I find quite really interesting. That you're you're kind of like 
unconsciously being gamified. <laughs> and the politics around that I find quite... And in a way, I suppose that's going back to conspiracy theory context again, that there's that kind of thin line of what's real and what's not real and what's half real. And Yeah, I think there's a sense that since the net, you never know what part you're playing in whose game at any point. Everything's become so much more fluid. Maybe it was always so, but it feels that feels really intensified. I wanted to um, move into talking a little bit about live action role playing mm. and and some of the things that Ruth's been working on and developing, including the a whole series of interventions in Finsbury Park. And maybe before we get into the live action role playing thing, just because it's so contextual and it leads on what you were just saying, Mark, could could one of you just tell us a little bit about Finsbury Park, uh, where the Furtherfield site is located and it's sort of yeah what what it's like and what kinds of stuff you folks are up to there before we get to the larp stuff there's it's a very dynamic area you've it's it's kind of situated between haringey uh, hackney and islington which are three different uh councils or boroughs of london and uh, and you and it's got over 200 languages that are spoken just in that area and uh, and it's smack bang in the middle of that triangle, you've got the Finsbury Park, and which is our space. So we've got a gallery there, and we've got a, uh, a lab space there, and which we've had there since I don't know, two thousand eleven or twelve. Roof. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What we decided after moving from our warehouse, which we had, which we uh, we couldn't pay the rent for anymore, although it was a very good warehouse, is that people that walked in the park were more likely to go to the exhibitions and critique culture like we were, uh, but with us. And, and they didn't necessarily have to be an art-going public or media art types. And they, they could be just people that are walking by with their dog or uh, a kind of Muslim family that's having a picnic on the day and it didn't matter they were interested in the same questions as we we've been asking and it's just that they weren't being asked in the art world so you know when one good example when we had a drones exhibition we had drone exhibition uh workshops and a lot of people uh were worried about drones killing their families in Afghanistan and in Pakistan around that time. And so they want to know who was paying for the drones and where did the bits come from and were those bits that make those drones legal? So we created a big map together and we found out where all the illegal sources were that creates a drone that the military use. And that's a good example of how you kind of like collaborate with the community to ask questions together and how the park in a way kind of opened that up with us. And we did that same kind of approach with games culture as well. Since the pandemic, like the gallery is small and therefore it's hard to plan for exhibitions in a space where you're needing to do social distancing and where you need staff there to keep people safe and show them around and make them feel welcome, etc. And so currently our programme, all of our programming is happening through hoardings on the outside of the gallery 
giving people access to digital programs. So like we've turned the whole of the gallery inside out and are really now exploring how we can make the whole of the park a plinth. And uh, this year we've just completed our first year of the People's Park Plinth programme. And this is now really going to become a rolling programme for us. And we have a new uh, voting app out called Culture Stake, where the people in the locality vote for the work that they would like to see realised at a larger scale. And it's really looking at how we can flip a kind of model of a gallery that funnels the best of international art, in air quotes, the best of international art into a locality and bestows it generously on the people of that place. Instead, like really understanding that the people in places have the best insights into what is culturally relevant to them and to provide ways or to start to work out how we can work to see ourselves together in a location and work out what culture is most meaningful to us in a place. We're experimenting with new ways to have people say what is meaningful to them and have that shape our programs in new ways, really using the whole park as a platform or the whole park as a plinth. Now, this, Ruth, maybe segues into the question I want to ask you about LARPs or live action role playing, yeah. uh, which is a uh, basically describes when people elect to, as a kind of game, take on characters and and uh, put their bodies, uh, when it's not a pandemic, uh, into a kind of fictional scenario to try and work out different ideas, different concepts, different challenges, different ways of thinking about the future. What attracted you to using LARPs as a methodology. And then I wonder if you can t- give us an example of one of the projects that you're working on where it's proven a really useful methodology. I can't remember what attracted me at first, but it was a very natural progression from kind of working working in this slightly kind of interventionist, cheeky way on the internet where you could kind of intervene in different communities and provoke new kinds of interactions. It's interesting, I hadn't made this connection before, but it really does speak to the situation we're in now that I described earlier as like never knowing what part you are playing in somebody else's game. And I think one of the strong attractions to me now of LARPing is that you're always inviting a range of people into a situation to explore just how we shape the world in through the way we socialize and through our social interactions, how we build worlds through the identities that we wear and through our interactions with each other. I should talk about the, the LARP that we're working on at the moment, which is called the Treaty of Finsbury Park. It's an interspecies political LARP. It takes um, as its scenario that all the species of the park in Finchbury Park have risen up to demand equal rights with humans. And after much unrest, it's been agreed that a treaty will be drawn up designating these rights. But first, humans need to learn to better relate to and understand non-humans so they can cooperate better together. And there's a new device called the sentience dial 
which allows humans to tune into all the flora and fauna of the park. So inside this LARP, so we're inviting people to a series of public assemblies where we uh, will eventually decide on a biodiversity habitat within the park that will host the first global interspecies festival. Every player play is mentored by one of our mentor species of the park to learn what conditions are impinging on their existence, to learn how humans, how human colonial politics especially is kind of impinging on their flourishing and to imagine what it would be to value non-human rights in the same way as we supposedly value human rights at the same time as really thinking about how much we actually attend to human rights at all on the ground in Finsbury Park. So it's a way to do human and more than human politics all at once and have a lot of fun doing it. And can you just walk us through what that would look like and feel like in terms of the gameplay itself and how people would get involved? This project has grown and grown. So we're having our first public game in the park in November, where we're inviting some, we're calling them expert witnesses. So we have the park ranger, we have one of the people who works at Edible Landscapes, which is a kind of uh, permaculture and growing group in the park. We're inviting uh, someone from the Thames Water who built what's called a new forest. So it's some trees along one side of where the reservoir is in the park. So they will come in and they will talk about the, the, the kind of values of their different habitats and what they are, what value they bring to the biodiversity of the park. And then we are all playing one of seven species mentors and we will have an argument about which of these habitats should host next year's interspecies uh, festival in the same way that global cities compete to host the Olympics. So by creating this kind of competition around which is best collectively, uh, we also get to look at uh, what is needed by each of these species and all of the species in the park. So it's kind of constantly playing the kind of individual and collective interest off against each other and seeing how they bump up against each other. Meanwhile, everyone in the conversation is playing one of these characters and these characters, they're prepared as they enter the game. They're taken through a series of exercises to identify with, empathise and actually learn about what the species experiences on the ground. So we're doing with like, we put a lot of stress on all of our players. It's, we use a process called hot seating. It's, a, it's like this, I'm currently in the hot seat. You're asking me questions. I'm pretending I'm Ruth Catlow and answering as though I'm a real, as though I'm a real person. Anyone can ask me anything and I'll say something. And whatever I say somehow contributes to the, our idea of what the real world is. That's the form of LARPing that we're doing in this game. Uh, I guess the one thing to add is that in this game, we'll be wearing masks. 
And then as the game progresses in the spring, we're playing, we're running a series of online assemblies where we'll never see a human face. We're all wearing digital animated masks. Uh, these will be recorded and then screened live and people can join a live chat and reflect on what's going on in them. And then we're presenting a series of habitat pitches that people can experience through immer immersive VR or AR in the park next spring. And then they'll vote on which habitat is going to host the interspecies festival. And then we'll have a festival. Who knows what that will be, but something will happen. I wanted to ask you, as we're sort of coming towards the end of our interview today, if you can share some your reflections on what you think, how, how would you um, describe the role of art today in as a field for allowing for experimenting with these kind of questions and the kind of interventions that you have been describing. Um, why and how is it still an important field um, for, for this type of work? There's a double-edged sword regarding art because I think, you know, in a way, if politics was to dominate the, the kind of, the idea of what art is in 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 the contemporary world, I'd, I'm not sure if I'd be personally quite happy, but in a sense, I'd, I would like the field of art to expand beyond markets alone and beyond being dominated by just a few different groups like Freeze, et cetera, you know, and kind of like where you kind of got a much more grassroots understanding of, of, of an art context where people are exploring in a much more fluid way what art means collectively as well as individually and where the, the part of the art process is actually critiquing the not just colonization but also which we've been doing for 25 years now uh, but but also critiquing uh, genius and what that means we live our ideas and I think that's probably the difference you know when if you live what you believe rather than just paying lip services and and remember we're an organization as well as artists so that means you've got an infrastructure you've got a network you've got a history you've got a community and you're exploring an everyday dynamic beyond the self with the self and and where you're uh, you're kind of in a constant dialogue of what that what shape is being developed as part of a kind of ongoing critique of society through uh, a kind of cultural hacking, but through an art con context, you know, and and I just think that in a way has no end. Uh, there's there's not a conclusion it's a way of life that just exists and that's what we do just like we would eat and so we don't know what we'll look like in two years time possibly or or, or what we should look like two years time because I think the engagement of the contemporary issues as well as being shaped by the negativities we're being shaped by the the kinds of really progressive critiques and ideas out there that remould us to progress at the same time. The thing is, is not to be so uh, stuck within particular ways of being where you, you're strong enough to bring a critique with you, but at the same time, 
strong enough to leave critiques behind at the same time if they're no longer working. And I think art should be that place or can be that place where you can reevaluate all that stuff at the same time you live the proposition uh, rather than pretending to live the proposition. Yeah, living the proposition and inviting others to do the same and to experiment with it, to use the proposition of art to their own ends. And, and that's, the, that's the difference. And in know, the interest of their communities. Because if you've got institutions, they have to stick to a kind of uh, a canon and a colonisation agenda. And uh, we're a non-institution, so we have to adapt according to contemporary ideas and solid grounded belief systems as well. So yeah, it was great to talk to Ruth and Mark today about the work at Furtherfield. I thought uh, some very interesting points there of connection between our project and uh, and their interventions. And I think that for me, what I found especially relevant was their view of uh, games intervention at the level of a local community and their kind of uh, way of connecting across the virtual and the physical uh, with taking this this park, the Finsbury Park, as a locus of their of their activity and the way they kind of uh, and especially how uh, they were describing a specific game uh, applied using the gallery as a kind of um, starting point to 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 draw those connections with different disparate groups that we don't um, that often uh, we don't get to. Um, hear from, I suppose, in this, in this kind of conversations. So I, I kept thinking as they were describing their game at Finsbury Park about something, another kind of uh, game uh, that is taking place currently at Regent's Park here in London, uh, the Freeze uh, Annual Fair, which is a game of its own kind, very different to, to what Mark and Ruth were describing, um, and a very different way in which art is engaging with local communities, uh, as in limiting, limiting, limited if, you know, um, zero uh, connections. Uh, this mobilization of playfulness and, and a kind of situationist spirit of games, but actually taken in the realm of real local community and enacted on that level. For me, that's something that is actually very also it gives me hope and I think it's very on, on a just on a very uh, on a simple level very encouraging uh, sign of uh, art engagement uh, with gamified gamified logic and a gamified capitalism uh, that does something quite palpable with with an immediate effect so yeah for me that that's what I kept mostly from our conversation today yeah, I was thinking about similar similar things and, and some of the research I've done in the past and that I've I've had a number of conversations with Ruth and Mark about in terms of the the uses and abuses of art um in a gamified capitalist world. And you know, I think 
on the one hand, we've seen a lot, especially over the last 30 years, of art being kind of manipulated as a tool of uh, capitalist reproduction. You know, I, I think maybe most famously and gallingly, we've seen over the last 30 years this way that that art has become a kind of pawn on the chessboard of gentrification to be sort of moved around uh, as a kind of um, as an as, as a avant-garde, let's say, of uh, the the destruction of working class racialized communities by the kind of influx of money, where you first send in the artists and the studios and the galleries, and then everyone else follows behind. Um, but you know, this falls on many centuries of the bourgeoisie or ruling class using art as a kind of vehicle for their um, their reproduction. We've recently seen art. I mean, the the Pandora Papers, which just came out, just reaffirmed again that the world's super elite are kind of using fine art as a vehicle to kind of uh, evade taxes and move their monies uh, in and out of tax shelters and tax havens around the world. And so I think we can we can look to art and and the way that art is being used to take up that question that Mark and Ruth kind of articulated in this in this discussion that like we all feel today like we're part of somebody else's game and the the process of kind of theorizing our experience is trying to figure out whose game we're a part of and then how we could either like the pawns in Ruth's uh, anti-war game kind of devise our own forms of agency beyond the command and control of the whoever's game we're trapped in, or if we can overturn the table and play a different game of some sort. Um, and then this, this sort of second thing that that brings to mind for me is the idea that uh, just how important play is to the human animal, to all animals. I mean, David Graeber wrote a really wonderful article on play where he even theorized play as something that describes the behavior of subatomic particles. So, you know, for him, play was this incredibly deep ontological uh, idea. Um, and the way that in this society, which is so deeply obsessed with work and productivity and results, art is one of the only maybe in sport in some way, but but maybe even less so with sport. It's one of the only realms that's left to adults where play is possible. And what I like about the further field experiment and the, the kind of vision of a kind of post-situationist, post-punk um, ethos that they've they've held on to and that they kind of champion is that it's it's really on some level about maintaining the the state of play and the state, the kind of ludic. Um, self-discovery through play that has been carved out by artists in this strange thing that we call art. Um, so I think that's a, that's really inspiring. And I think that then has allowed for the emergence of like the way that Ruth is thinking about LARPing as this methodology to kind of think the unthinkable, to take the perspective of the grass uh, at Finsbury Park and put the grass in dialogue with the ravens and put the ravens in dialogue with the kids who want to play basketball and put the kids who want to play basketball in uh, dialogue with the pipes underneath the park. And, you know, to do these these feats of the imagination that then allow us to think about what it would mean to organize our society on a truly democratic basis that not only includes a great diversity of humans who share space and fate, but also non-human actors as well. 
just a big shout out to the importance of of play and thinking through play and its multidimensionality uh, that we heard about on this podcast. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about the podcast, to listen to other excellent episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it is a part, please visit our website, http colon slash slash conspiracy dot games. Conspiracy dot games. We'll see you next time. See you next time.